You are listening to the AbraMoney 3.0 show, your guide to the future of all things money. In this episode, Abra founder and CEO Bill Barhide is in conversation with David Vorick, co-founder and CEO of Saya. The network that Saya is building is a really interesting example of the kinds of technologies that are made possible by blockchain and cryptocurrencies. Saya is a decentralized cloud storage network that ultimately allows its users to have more control over their data. Before jumping in, remember, the information presented in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only. It should not be used or construed as an offer to sell or solicitation of an offer to buy any of the financial assets discussed. Any opinions expressed herein are subject to change. Neither Abra nor any of the participants in this podcast make any representation as to the suitability or appropriateness of these financial assets for individual investors. And with that out of the way, on to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of Abra's Money 3.0. Bill Barhide here, CEO and founder at Abra. With me today, uh, joining me for the Money 3.0 podcast is David Forick. David is CEO of, um, did I get it right? Uh, is it Nebulous? Or how, yep. do, how do you always say it? That's Nebulous. Nebulous, right. And uh, Nebulous is best known as the creator of Sciacoin. Uh, and I, I really want to dig into this because I'm really interested in decentralized storage. And uh, so, so let, let me ask you a question right out of the gate. Why should consumers, first of all, welcome. Uh, and second, why should consumers care about decentralized storage in the cloud? Yeah, uh, great question. And I think um, it really comes down to control, uh, not just of your data, but like of the world around you. So when we uh, put data on, say, like Google, or on Gmail or on iCloud, um, what's happening is these other companies are taking our data, they're scanning our data, they're learning who we are, they're crafting advertisements, they're trying to, like it's it's Google's goal to shape our behavior, shape the way we spend money um, to fit you know their, their purpose and to fit their bottom line. Um, and so if we don't have control of our data, um, we're kind of just offering our lives up to Google um, and Google's going to make the most of it. Yep. So, so you know, I was watching this great hack documentary, and it's okay. I mean, I think for, for those of us in the middle of of all this stuff, it's it's probably not as deep as it should be, but it's definitely worth watching. I, I encourage all of the the Abra viewers who are on Netflix to watch the great hack. Uh, Brittany Kaiser is kind of the the, the protagonist who uh, was the whistleblower on the whole Cambridge Analytica thing, and she's created this movement around uh, own your own data, right? And 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 it's kind of an anti anti-Facebook uh, pitch. And how, how, how can we relate that to, to social media? Is there a way to basically leverage this new technology to still have the social graph, but be able to own your own data at the same time? Yeah, I, I think there is. And really what, um, what we care about with the social graph is, is sharing things with our friends. And of course, so we're, we're online our friends are online. And if we have a platform like Saya where we can put data and where we can share data with each other, um, you know, I think you can see that Facebook isn't strictly a necessary part of being social. Um, so I do think that with these decentralized technologies coming out, uh, you know, there are ways that we can replace, you know, not just Facebook, but like Twitter, Reddit, YouTube, Instagram. Um, with decentralized versions of these applications that don't allow a company like Facebook to, you know, gain access to our lives and and to you know control what we see. Yeah, and and 
how how does the user experience most likely manifest itself, right? I mean, the idea of owning your own key to your own data for a computer scientist like yourself or or myself is very compelling, right? It's it's um, it's complete ownership and agency over your life. Again, very compelling. But the user experience around that, in terms of what happens if I lose my keys, you know, how do I actually access the information when I'm on the move? It, it's very daunting, right? So, how do you think that plays itself out over time? Yeah. So I kind of see, um, you know, I think uh, we've we've demonstrated as a society that we're very good about keeping certain important items on us at all times. Uh, for example, our, our cell phones and our credit cards, I mm -hmm. think, are two two items that really don't have trouble, you know, following us as we travel throughout the day and, and you know, throughout the world. Um, and so I think that we're going to either either adapt the cell phone to like include something related to our keys or, or pick up another card, like another credit card um, that has our keys on it and our identity on it. Um, and then we'll also, you know, like what happens if you lose it? If you lose a credit card, you have a process to go get a new credit card, generally involving a bank. And I actually think it's pretty reasonable that some combination of a bank, a safe deposit box, or maybe like a family lawyer, um, you know, they would have all everything that you need to reconstruct uh, a new identity if you lose your card. And you could just, same thing with a credit card, you invalidate the old one, uh, you announce the new one. And then, uh, so I, I do think that it's early and we don't have these tools yet, but I see us getting to a point where a decentralized identity is uh, comfortable and familiar and has a similar UX to items that are already super important to us and that we always have on us. So it's almost like what you're saying is, is that the third party that you trust may be the one backing up your credentials as opposed to the data itself, because... Ultimately, if you lose the phone, you got to go back to your wireless carrier to get your your you know, IMEI on a new SIM card. And if you lose your credit card, you got to basically call up your bank or the card issuer to get a new card. And that just may be the access point into this decentralized world. Um, so that's a it's an interesting twist on on how a lot of people have been thinking about this because ultimately, even though um, uh, you know we we tout this issue of owning your own keys at Abra, the reality is is most of our users. Even the people listening to this really just aren't there yet in terms of owning their own keys. Some are. We have many, many users who who believe in it. Let's take a step back and talk about uh, Sciacoin now. And um, thank you for um, humoring me on on these intro questions. Give me the background. Where where, where does Sciacoin come from? How did this get started? Um, let's go through it step by step. Yeah. So I would say um, Sciacoin really comes from a background of disliking the cloud. Um, I've been off of Facebook for several years, uh, and I've never really been comfortable with the idea of like giving all of my information to Facebook, giving all my information to Google, because I know that the, these are companies with ulterior motives at the end of the day, their goal is to make money and, and their goal is to protect me only so far as protecting me makes me money. Um, and so really I wanted to, my data is super important to me and I wanted to create uh, an infrastructure or, you know, a platform where I can store my data with, without having to worry about the ulterior motives of the people that I'm giving the data. I wanted the platform to be uh, like inherently aligned with my goals. Um, and so that's, that's really what we're trying to do with Sia. How does that differ from BitTorrent or other uh, decentralized or quasi even, I don't know if decentralized is, is the right term, but 
but let's call them sufficiently decentralized uh, cloud storage systems. Yeah. Um, so the thing that Saya does uh, that I think no one else does really well is it, it gives people an incentive to hold on to uh, data that they don't care about. So for in the example of BitTorrent, a file is only going to be available on BitTorrent if uh, a bunch of other people care about it. And so that's really great for things like, uh, say, movies or music, because a lot of people listen to the same music and watch the same movies. But if, if you want to put your like family videos on BitTorrent, and especially if you want to put your encrypted family videos on BitTorrent, no one's going to seed that because who's you know who cares about that data? It's it's only interesting to you, and especially if it's encrypted, it's definitely yeah. only interesting yeah. to you. But on the Cyan network, you actually pay uh, other people to hold on to it. So even though it's encrypted and they have no idea what data you just gave them, and they don't care about it at all, you also like put them under this contract that pays them for holding on to it, and so they're they're happy to hold on to it for you because they're getting paid. Um, and I think that's that's really where we diverge from other platforms. Do I, do I know as a consumer how many nodes are actually storing a copy of each piece of the data that's out there? Yes, you do. Um, so when you upload data to the SCI network, uh, your node picks how many uh, places to put the data in. And right now, if you're just using the default like standard client, it's going to put your data on 30 different hosts, each of the 30 being paid separately to hold the data. Um, and we use we use something called Reed Solomon. So this is a, a redundancy scheme where out of those 30 hosts, you only need 10 of them. And it doesn't matter which 10 uh, to get your data back. Gotcha. And, and, and if I'm a host, um, and I, I assume, by the way, there's something like a hash being run on the data uh, versus the original upload to, to show the owner that the integrity of the data is, is, is such that the data that they're hosting is correct or valid, um, that they're not paying for something that isn't yep. there. Um, so if I'm a host now and it costs me X dollars to pay for storage or buy my storage, um, what's my ROI today on um, taking Sciacoin uh, as a, a payment mechanism for hosting somebody else's data in, in this decentralized model? Yeah, so we're seeing on the Cyan network today the the top hosts are making between five and ten dollars per month to hold on to people's data, um, and we estimate that these hosts have about uh, maybe three hundred dollars worth of infrastructure that they're that they're committed uh, to holding the Cyan data. So in terms of like raw dollars, um, the Cyan network is still fairly small, but I think. Uh, just this year, we've kind of crossed the threshold where hosts are uh, actually able to turn a profit at this point, making making five dollars per month or ten dollars per month on a three hundred dollar investment is, um, you know, fairly, fairly good uh, for hardware that's expected to last five to seven years. Yeah. So basically about a two and a half year um, return. Uh, and then you can basically, you know, do a, an MPV on that. Sounds like um, okay. And 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 do you know yep. how many how many nodes there are out there today, and how many people individuals are storing information on those nodes? Yeah. So it looks like um, well, we're actually, we're pretty confident there are about 300 nodes on the network today that are storing data. Um, and then we estimate uh, this is harder to be certain that there are about a thousand individuals on the network that are uh, using the storage. Gotcha, gotcha. 
I've, um, it's really interesting. I, I, I'm going to have to start playing with this. I, I have so much personal data that I, that I trust and I won't say who, cause I don't want the hackers to basically go nuts, but, but I, that, that I trust the various service providers. And, um, it's such a, a weak link in my life. Um, that I, I, it's, it's one of these things where I'm sure you guys talk about this all the time that until somebody's hacked, they probably don't care or they don't care enough, um, about this issue. Right. And then, and then that begs the question, well, if I'm encrypting my information, which I'm, I'm guessing your software does, uh, I'd like to get, you know, your take on that. But if I'm encrypting my information and uploading it to these nodes, you're, you're, you're obviously saying that that's definitely more secure than trusting a, a Google Drive or iCloud or Dropbox or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, why, why is that more secure um, than basically just encrypting the data and putting it on that central place and then having my own password that's impossible to guess? Yeah. Um, so we do we do encrypt the data before we put it up. Uh, the sign network is a security first uh, mentality, and so we, you know, if if we don't know how to do something securely, we just won't enable it as a feature. So every everything that we know how to do, uh, we know how to do securely. Um, but then, um, actually, sorry, I lost the second half of the question. So how do I know that this is more secure than using a centralized cloud storage where where I'm just uploading encrypted data there. So even if somebody was to hack the cloud service, they couldn't decrypt the data. Ah, okay. Yeah. So the um so if you are encrypting the data locally and then uploading it after you've encrypted it, then your data privacy is actually probably equivalent. Um the you know the cloud isn't going to be able to get into your data as long as you're yeah. using a strong encryption algorithm. Um, the cloud isn't going to be able to get into your data any more than a SIA host is going to be able to get into your data. Um, but in terms of security, um, the cloud provider can at any time change their terms of service, can eject you for violating terms of service, can change the prices. Um, and so you're kind of at the, at the whims of what your provider is deciding for whether or not you're going to be able to get your data back. Uh, whereas with the SIA network, since it's it's fully decentralized, there is no like company that can make their decision, uh, make you know, snap their fingers and make a decision to kick you off the network or accuse you of violating terms of service. It's it's not a even though we're the builders of the platform, we don't have the power to you know force people off the platform or, or change how much they pay uh, to store data on the SIA network. And I think that um, you know, comes with some peace of mind. Yeah. So how does, how does Nebulous or, or Sia make money then uh, if, if there is no quote-unquote owner of the network? Great question. So there's a uh, fee model built right into the blockchain that we use. So every time that you upload data to the Sia network, um, a, a fee gets transitioned to um, essentially our company. Um, and that's just that's a rule of the consensus network. If you wanted to stop paying us or, or circumvent the fee, you'd have to go clone the Cyan network, pull out the fee, and then launch a completely separate platform. Um, and the and the kind of idea behind this fee is that you know we're building the network, we're adding value to it. If we disappear, you know you stop getting new features and such. And so what we found is that all of our users are perfectly happy to pay the fee. Um, because they know that that the value they're getting out of us being alive is greater than you know the the money that they pay to the fee. 
Yeah. How does how does it work uh, from a blockchain perspective? If I'm accessing data and I need real time access to my information, what are you transacting on the blockchain, and and how does the performance of that relate to my ability to access my data? Because blockchains are no- are notoriously um, inefficient and slow, right? Yes, that's a that's a great question. So we do everything over layer two. Um, so essentially, when you join the Sci network you have to create a set of file contracts. Um, and so right right at the beginning, as you're getting started, there is this process of downloading the blockchain, verifying it, creating transactions that go on chain. Um, and so there's, there's a setup process. But once you're set up, everything, these file contracts are actually state channels and payment channels. And so if you want to pay a host to download your data, that happens off chain and that can happen instantly. And, and you, know, you send the host a, a payment packet the host will send you back your data and it happens very quickly. And you never, once you're set up, you're never waiting for the blockchain to upload or download data or to send data to your friends. Are the, um, are the, are the cyan nodes, I don't, I don't know if I'm using the right terminology, are the cyan nodes the same nodes that route the payments? So yeah, we, uh, we call um, the hosts on the network, the people storing data, we call them hosts. And the hosts are the ones who, uh, facilitate the payment channel. So they're the other side. And if, if you're doing any sort of routing, it'll be going through the hosts. Now, this sounds a lot like Lightning, of course, and I'm guessing that this, this precedes Lightning. Um, is there a lot of similarity there or, or are there key differences? At a very high level, um, they're, they're similar in terms of what they enable you to do. Um, we use actually uh, something called packetized payments. Um, so in the Lightning Network, you kind of do everything uh, all at once. And in the Cyan Network, you do everything in little tiny bits. And so uh, what that means for us is that it's a lot easier for us to do a bunch of transactions at once. For example, when you, um, when you download data, you're not actually paying one host. You have to pay 10. And we can actually get better speeds if you're paying you know, all, all 30 hosts. So we might make 30 transactions in, you know, 100 milliseconds. Um, and because we use packetized payments, the technology is just, it's a lot faster. And the amount of money that we can send over the network is a lot smaller. But the amount of money we need to send over the network is a lot smaller than the Lightning Network. So I would say from a user level, they're they're pretty similar. At the technical detail, uh, they're they're fairly different. I see. So, so you're, it's an advantage in your case, the fact that you're paying all the nodes because the, the the fan the ability to fan out the money um, is is uh, easier to implement than just going to to one specific uh, person via a lightning node. Um, I, I totally get it. So so interesting. But that is a really interesting technology that you've created in order to solve uh, a key problem uh, within within Sia. That's very interesting. Um, so so what's next? I, I guess before you answer what's next, I, I think um, let me let me narrow that a little bit. I think it's really cool. I think it's, I see, I see the advantages. Realistically, how do we go from a few early adopters who just don't like Facebook, don't like cloud storage companies to more mass adoption of decentralized uh, online storage? Yeah, um, I think there are two elements there. The first is that the technology is is still, you know, a little rough around the edges. It's not something I think uh, my grandmother 
would have an easy time uh, using or getting comfortable with. And that's and that's just something that the more we build and the more we iterate, it gets progressively better and better. But uh, but then the other half is like the crypto world as a whole is kind of still early and coming to term. And so um, we still haven't figured out the best UX. We still, you know, it's still not the case that everybody has cryptocurrency. The percentage of cryptocurrency owners in the world is very small. Um, and I think that, you know, all of this is going to have to kind of come forward together. So, okay. And and are we talking like two years, five years? You know, wh- what do you think is realistic here in terms of taking this mainstream? Yeah, so I think I think if, if we're defining mainstream as like, you know, 50% of all Americans, um, I do think we're probably looking at the five to 10 year range as opposed to the two or three year range. I do think the technology still needs some work. Yep, yep. Now, as much as I hate regulation, right, it, it, I'm, I'm wondering if, if you guys have, have seen any sign that any of either the existing pending or maybe future regulation as it would relate to overseeing a Facebook or Google or, or Apple or whoever um, could potentially give you uh, a head start in or a kickstart in, in terms of being able to uh, promote uh, this type of decentralized system versus centralized systems. Have you thought about that? Yeah, I mean, so it's certainly interesting to see uh, things like the the antitrust stuff that's coming down on Facebook. And I think that really favors us because it is a technology where, you know, trusts are are about control and worrying that one company has too much power and is abusing it. And we're building a platform where nobody has power and where power cannot be abused. Um, and so I think as people get more, you know, think more and more about uh, the tech monopolies that exist, um, legislation that comes down on them is likely to favor us. Uh, on the other hand, you have a lot of like uh, know your customer and anti-money laundering uh, regulation that it's not intended to harm SIA, but an unfortunate side effect is that it makes it much, much harder for the, the SIA network to transact uh, cleanly and comfortably. And so um, it's something we're paying a lot of attention to. Uh, we are donors to several groups that, uh, you know, try and help shape the law um, and try and, you know, fight for digital rights and digital freedom. Um, and so right now, I, I would say there's no re- legislation that's super worrying at the moment. But we're definitely paying attention and, and kind of, you know, it's it's something we worry about. Yep. Yep. Um, really interesting. So now now let's talk about you for a minute. So so you're from Chicago, is that right? That's correct. Uh, Chicago suburbs. Yeah. Sure. Cool. So so I think uh, you and I both kind of a similar background in terms of going to, the, you know, I went what I would call to one of these working class engineering colleges. I did my undergrad at Stevens uh, before dropping out of Stanford and and I know you went to RPI, which was always like a competing, one of those like small group of competing, uh, you know, Northeast uh, engineering schools. And how did that, uh, how did that kind of shape your, um, your vision of the world? And how did you go from, you know, just wanting to be a, I, I, I assume a software programmer to somebody who is uh, really all in, in, in this new decentralized world? Yeah, I think, uh, actually, I would say the, the student body at RPI had a huge hand in shaping my worldviews. Um, and so the the other students who were there, I think, um, were really good at challenging me, uh, and especially when it came to like 
you know, learning how to be a good programmer and a good engineer, um, they were, they were much better at like, um, just teaching and, and presenting challenges and like, you know, we would tackle tasks together. Um, and so I think, I think that was much more important than a lot of what the RPI administration did. Um, I also have to mention though, um, yeah, we had, we had an open source club and then RPI also had something called the Severino center, which is like an entrepreneurship center. Um, there were several mentors at the, at the Severino center who kind of opened my eyes to the world of, you know, doing startups and running companies. And I think, um, ultimately it was, it was a combination of, of our open source club and our entrepreneurial center, uh, at RPI that. Yeah, showed showed me that I didn't have to go to Google, um, and that a you know a comfortable engineer salary at Google is not the only way to uh, live once you once you leave college. Um, and so, yeah, gotcha. Now, did you start Sciacoin before leaving RPI? Is that is that how far back it goes, or did they come later? Yeah, so we incorporated the company. Uh, I think like one or two weeks before graduating. So I spent, I spent three years at RPI. I graduated my third year. Um, and I, one semester before I graduated, I actually was asking Google to let me drop out and, and start full-time a semester early with no degree, um, which Google denied. And then it was really my final semester um, that I started to come around a lot more to the idea of starting my own company. Um, and so I almost feel like it just happened spontaneously. Um, but you know, now, now that I have, and I've been through the whole entrepreneurship experience, I know that it's like a much better fit for my personality to, you know, go out and blaze your own trail and, and, you know, struggle with something that you have a high ownership of. Uh, I've been really happy that I did that. How many, um, how many pivots have you guys had? I mean, is it, is it really the same kind of product platform or have you had to refactor the company? Is it? Is it, uh, are we looking at our, you know, incarnation number six of Sciacoin or is this really still number one? So amazingly, uh, this is incarnation number two. Uh, it's something we're actually internally very proud of. Um, when we got started in May, 2014, we had certain ideas of how things were going to work. Uh, we approached a lot of the Bitcoin developers and Bitcoin core developers for peer review. Um, and they gave us some very sharp feedback. And we realized that we ultimately had to throw everything away um, and that, that what we had made initially was not great. Uh, so I would say that was incarnation one. We threw everything away in 2014. So we were getting rid of maybe six months of full-time work uh, between me and my co-founder. Uh, so it, it was uncomfortable. But then we, we sat down. We didn't program for like a month. We just ironed out what we wanted the Cyan Network to look like. Um, and the product, the final result, we released in November 2014, a new white paper that completely redefined what the Sci Network was and how it worked. And amazingly, the, the white paper is still like reasonably accurate today. That's essentially what is explained in the white paper is essentially how everything works today. You know, some of the small details are wrong, but the, but the big ideas are exactly what we're doing five years later. I'm curious, uh, I'm curious how you think about kind of enterprise storage, right? So, so there's a lot of companies today that are going to Amazon and uh, Google and Microsoft for cloud services uh, in the enterprise, and, and these have become wildly profitable businesses uh, for all three companies, right? Um, the cost of, of, of running those cloud businesses uh, gives them fantastic economies of scale. 
years ago, people thought, hey, nobody's going to trust, uh, trust Amazon with their corporate data. And now everyone is, right? Do you foresee uh, a point where enterprises start using this type of decentralized system where they actually don't even know uh, who's potentially storing the data, which country it might be in, um, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera? Do you, do you foresee that happening? Yeah, so I will say that actually there, the Sci Network does give you plenty of ability to control uh, who's storing your data and what country it goes in, et cetera. And so in the default settings, uh, you don't really know. But if you want to, there are tools uh, in the Sci ecosystem that give you that give you these insights and also give you the ability to say, you know, only only store my data in Europe. Um, and and if you want to do that, that's something you can. But uh, more to the point of the enterprise question, I think that. Um, something the economy and, and like corporations and enterprise struggle with as a whole right now is analyzing systemic risk. And, and it, you know, it comes up as things blow up and people think about it more as stuff blows up. So I think, you know, a failure to analyze systemic risk uh, was a big part of, of the 2008 recession. Um, and as companies are seeing more and more things like data breaches or, or for example, AWS went down, uh, EC2 went down, um, and then like half the internet was offline. You couldn't load images on Imgur. Some people couldn't turn on their lights. Shoes, I hadn't heard that smart one. Shoes couldn't to tie themselves. AWS before yeah. they powered on. Shoes couldn't tie themselves anymore. Um, it's like this, this crazy thing happened. Um, and... It's one of my favorites. You can you can Google that. I believe it was Nike had a pair of shoes that stopped being able to tie. Um, and we, as, as things like this happen, we start to realize more and more that that there's these big systemic risks attached, uh, you know, associated with putting all our eggs in one pot. Um, and I think if we have evolve as a company to treat systemic risk more seriously and we and we account for risk seriously decentralization will come forward as this like uh, shining release valve as a way to mitigate or eliminate risk by moving you know not just to saya but to like to bitcoin or to stable coins or to other other decentralized systems that who entire like reason for being is to eliminate risk um, and so i would present saya as it's a platform that its whole goal is to is to clear these risks away. Yep. So so I get that. That makes sense. Um, what about just the the path to companies really accepting that th that they should trust some unknown third party to actually store the data? I mean, if, if everything you're saying is true, why not just say, hey, we're going to have a backup ourselves? That we're going to put up off-site and we're just going to own it and it's going to be totally compliant with whatever local laws we have to deal with yeah so i i think it starts as an education challenge and you know it's not just some unknown computer it's it's some unknown computer that's storing computer that's storing encrypted data that put up collateral that that has something to lose if they fail to store your data that also is being paid it has something to gain and so we have you know all these all these uh, incentives and alignments in place that we have to teach people about and get get them comfortable with, and we have all these fail safes, um, and that we have to get companies comfortable with. But I, it's kind of the same thing the cloud went through. You start with this like big period of education, 
And as you get through that, it turns it turns from being about education to kind of becoming instilled as common sense. And so people will stop needing to know all the details. They won't need to know about the incentives or understand like exactly why it's safer. They'll just know uh, based on experience, based on you know expert review, based on you know having seen that the system has been working for ten years with no issues. Um, it'll become common sense that you know, SIA or decentralization is the safer way to do things. Um, and then in the specific case of SIA, which is not true for all blockchain applications, it also helps that we're, you know, faster, have better uptime, and about an order of magnitude less expensive uh, than centralized alternatives. Okay, so so let's segue that into, um, you know, where you really see all this going. So, so let's say that we're, um, you know, five years out, what do you foresee kind of happening here? I mean, do you foresee a, a renaissance of decentralization in all aspects of people's lives online? Or do you still see kind of centralized monoliths that are, uh, that are running, running the world and, and uh, you know, owning everything? Or, or do you see uh, an undoing of, of, of the status quo? Yeah, I think so. I think five years out, what we'll see is is the first like big decentralized applications starting to gain substantial traction, and and maybe not enough to be called mainstream, but enough that everybody on Wall Street is thinking about it, um, and and is seeing the the shift that's coming. And so I think, you know, we're still going to see these these big centralized monoliths uh, have control in five years, but. Um, the, the world will have clued in at that point that like the tides are turning and that and that it's going to go away. Um, and I think, you know, if we look 10 years down the line, I see, you know, people probably aren't aware that um, that they're now on decentralized platforms, but kind of the same thing that, you know, Linux took over the server world. Almost every website in the world runs on an open source platform. It will also be the case that, you know, every you know, every payment in the world is going to happen over a decentralized payment network. Um, it's it's going to be powerful enough that all the all the infrastructure builders are going to strongly prefer the decentralized solution. It's just it's just going to be how the world works at one point. So what's the what's the short term killer app that you think the world needs uh, that would take advantage of these decentralized systems that you're most excited about? I mean, honestly, I'm most excited about uh, about Saya and some of the some of the storage stuff we have coming out. I think by the end of 2020, it's going to be possible to build, you know, say uh, a decentralized YouTube or a decentralized Medium or even a decentralized ZenCaster um, on the Saya network. And I think, uh, yeah, that's that's what I'm personally most excited about is is making that available for people. Do I think that's awesome. Do, do the content providers, the studios, the music publishers, do they ever come to you guys to actually talk about creating their own services or understand where the world is going? Or um, or are you guys still a little too far ahead of the curve at this point? Yeah, so we've had a few conversations. Um, and I think that when whenever we're talking to a larger company, like say a, a Dropbox um, or like a music studio, um, it comes down to scale and and technology maturity, um, and they you know they want to see more total storage on the network. They want to see more total users. Um, but but the the fun thing about that is that we've been growing 
you know, for the past nine months now, we've been experiencing about 20% growth per month. So you you draw that out over another year of time frame, and I think we will have hit um, hit the scales and the and the maturity that these platforms are looking for. So so definitely they're like they're aware of it, um, but they they're not certain that they can believe in it yet. Is what I would yep. say. It seems like the and I'm kind of thinking out loud here, but it seems like the logical path to get there is almost academic, right? So, so going to CERN and MIT and, and all of the other big research institutions that create, IBM even, that create the most content and say, let's create a, instead of the web itself, right, where you're basically just hosting on Amazon like everyone else or, you know, running servers in your, in your lab uh, with CS students, let's basically develop this shared global resource that truly is decentralized and show the world that we can do that using something like science so that um, later on there's a showcase for the next version of Netflix or YouTube or whatever decentralized consumer service wants to do something like this, but maybe not be the first. Um, is that, is that real? Is that a realistic path forward? Yeah, I, I think so. And I can say from experience that we have seen, uh, you know, for, for example, we have talked to CERN um, and we've talked to other academic institutions and they have this like uh, nice problem of, you know, data, data that they need to share. Also, they don't have a ton of money, so they need they need a cheap way to store it. And then they also need, you know, some platform that allows the data to stick around once they disappear, if the data is useful to other people. Um, and Sia is like at a at an interesting nexus of all three, as well as just being, um, you know, better or healthier, a healthier way for society to exist. So I I do think that um, that is like a, a viable avenue for for getting things off the ground. Yep. So so what would you need uh, from the public or from uh, let's call this a, a call to arms, right? I mean, what do you need in terms of help or or support and to to get something like that going? Yeah, so I I think that the uh, it really needs more attention, and and this is not just Saya, but the crypto space as a whole really needs more attention from developers who are willing to try things out, willing to provide feedback, willing to uh, do something in a way that nobody in crypto has done before. You know, take some ideas from their background and their industry. Um, and apply it to crypto. I think a lot of people, you know, don't realize how young of an industry crypto is and how many like ideas that might be obvious, you know, in the financial sector, obvious in the in the bio sector, but we just never have come across those ideas. And so um, I think I think we're still really looking for builders at this point to enter the space and to bring their ideas and to just try things out. Um, I think that would that would help a lot. So if I'm one of those builders and I want to use a decentralized storage medium to create the killer academic network where would i go to find out more information get started start seeing what i can build with what's out there today with tools like saya yeah um so on the saya saya network specifically i think there are two big resources available uh the first is our website which is saya.tech um, and that's where you're going to find a good intro to the platform. And if you go to sia.tech docs, you'll see the API for Sia. So you'll understand how to interact with it um, and you know what you need to do to build an application that's based on Sia. 
Um, and then the other place that I think has been super valuable for newcomers to the SIA network is our Discord. So discord.gg slash SIA um, is a, a chat room community, essentially, of people who are work with the technology every day, who build applications on top of the technology, who use it and run it, um, and who know the ecosystem and, and can really help you um, get started with the SIA network and, uh, and answer questions and such. Fantastic. So. Um... Look, I, I, I love what you're doing. I think it's, it's, it's fantastic for the ecosystem. We're, we're thrilled that uh, Sai is part of the, the, uh, the Abra, Abra network. Uh, our users can uh, deposit and, and withdraw and exchange between uh, all of our currencies and, and Sai coin. So, uh, so thank you for your contributions to the community. And we will continue to uh, do our part to make people aware of, of Sai and the project and, and hopefully... Uh, uh, this will lead to uh, more and bigger and, and, and better opportunities for everyone um, in the ecosystem. So, so thank you so much for your uh, for your contributions. Thank you, and uh, we're we're super excited to be involved. I'm super excited that you've that you've uh, incorporated us into your ecosystem, and uh, yeah, we just we want to see the world move forward. Thank you so much. So. Uh, David Vorick, CEO and, and, and co-founder of uh, Nebulous and Sciacoin, thank you so much for joining Abra's uh, Money 3.0 podcast. And uh, we'll, we'll call it there. That's a wrap for another episode of uh, Money 3.0. Thanks, everyone, for joining. And we will see you very soon. Have a great day. Thanks again for listening to the Abra Money 3.0 show. We hope you liked this episode as much as we did. If so, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and download the Abra app wherever you get your apps. Thanks again.